Hello, and welcome to the Psycho Podcast, where we uncover alternative styles of relationships and different ways to approach therapy through alternative modalities. I am your host, Margot Underwood. All right, let's jump into it. Today, we're joined by Scott Smith, a licensed counselor and clinical therapist who's been working in the mental health field for over 26 years. He practices what some people think of as soup therapy. He's currently working on his doctoral degree in psychology, as well as the working CEO of PF Dover Counseling, where he specializes in hypnosis, EMDR, and brain spotting. Back when he lived in Illinois, for about 18 years, he worked with juveniles who struggled with mental illness, as well as sex offending backgrounds, where he developed programs to treat these individuals in outpatient and in detention centers. Today, we're going to pick his brain about these populations and see how his alternative approach to therapy helped in his patient's success, as well as his own personal journey. Let's welcome Scott Smith. We are live. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to start off with this mention of soup therapy and how you got to that holistic type of approach, you know, what experiences brought you there. Um, so if you don't mind telling us a little bit about your journey. Sure. Yeah. Um, I actually was not the one that coined that phrase. That was a colleague of mine. And they were, we were talking about a case and some of the things that I was doing. And he had joked and he had said, is, is, you're really doing like soup therapy. And I said, what do you mean soup therapy? And he says, well, you're adding a little of this and you're putting some of this in and you're using this technique with this. And so you're, you're combining a number of different uh, concepts together to be able to be used all at once. So, for instance, like if I was doing hypnosis, I might add elements of like, say, EMDR. Or I may use some concepts of non-duality or these types of things and trying to integrate that. I guess it's more of an art than it is any one particular method. But it's just the addition of switching from one technique to another and then putting them together. So I don't know if there's any real way I can describe it other than just saying it's just a collective of a variety of concepts. It's true eclectic. Uh, therapy on the fly, I guess, is the way to put it. <laughs> right. Since you've been in the field for so long, you've you've had to adapt, I guess, to a lot of the new ways of approaching therapy, alternative ways of approaching therapy. There's a lot of people, I guess, talk therapy is not going to be a one-size-fits-all type of approach. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's funny, too, because you're saying new types of therapy, and actually, in many of the respects, when you go back and you look at little elements here and there of like non-duality or Buddhism or something like this, those are actually very old right. concepts there. So I guess that leads to the, the concept of the soup therapy again, is adding a little of this and a little of that here and there. And I don't know if there was any one particular moment um, that I recognized that. The colleague probably was more of a uh, of a, a guide for me to see is is that that that's actually what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But I've been doing those kinds of things for years. You know, it was like in one moment you're shifting from going to cognitive behavioral. Now you're doing some mindfulness concepts here. So it's it's just an an evolving process, I guess. Is as, as it's kind of going, kind of like jazz. It's improvisation within a certain level of boundaries as you're playing. Right. You're 
you're seeing what you're kind of curating your practice to your um, clients. Exactly. Figuring out what they need. Will you go into explain to our listeners what non-duality means? Because I feel like a lot of people are not going to be familiar. With sure. That. Yeah. It's a well. It's really a huge concept. So I'm I'm probably not going to do it. It's uh, justice by giving a, an explanation right now, but I'll give it a try. Um, non-duality is really seeing that there's no separation in the universe and that there's everything that is dealing with oneness. And it's concepts of mindfulness being in the moment, not in the future or in the past, but in the present and realizing that everything is always in the present. It's never in the future, never in the past, that it is all in one. And it's trying to be able to let go of your ego or your psychological self of who you think you are. And all of the prior conditioning and everything that has told you that this is the way that things are. So you see very quickly is, is that there's not as many truisms as you would think that there are in the world. So you start disengaging from the prior conditioning and the way that you've been led to believe that things are and start just witnessing and experiencing instead of just reiterating or parroting back what you've been told to believe in the world. It's detaching from the ego, the ego not in a Freudian sense, but the ego in the senses is that I want what I want when I want it and I want it now. You know, give it to me this moment. And that you identify with your body or your BMW or your car or the lack there of those things. And so it's really trying to get in touch with who the real you is. Not the detachment so much, but is the non-attachment of defining yourself by all of these other things like you are your job title, you are your body, and letting go of those concepts. And when you can do that, then you have the ability to have freedom. You're able to accept things as they are for what they are instead of the way that you've been told what they are, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. I love that. Um, I don't like, I'm not a person who likes to subscribe to labels. I know. I think these masks are really hard. <laughs> I'm going to take a breather there it's for okay. a minute. Okay, oh, you can. I'm hearing myself going, <gasps> <laughs> it, it's a little funny, you know, so anyway, <gasps> so I'm answering your questions. It sounds like I'm heaving or something like this, but oh my gosh, this mask is, it's doing a really oh good job, gosh, I guess. You're funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, doing, it's doing its job, right? <laughs> yes. I've never... Um... You should try and do hypnosis when you've got a shield on, and then you've got this black mask on. I mean, somebody's doing this for the very first time. They're a little scared anyway. And then you're approaching them like you're doing, like, you know, welding or something, you know. And like, We're going to help you. Ah, you know, it's like Darth Vader is coming to help you, you know. Gosh. So, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I've never taken... Um... I realized how much I took oxygen for granted since I <laughs> yes. have been wearing this. I'm like, but I... but but it's a huge thing with the 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 non-duality, is because what you're really doing is people are coming in with with uh, concepts that they have sold themselves on, or they've been told that you're no good, or that you're bad, or that you are your symptoms. So mm -hmm. so many people when they come into counseling, they'll say. Well, I'm depressed. And so they're defining themselves through their symptoms. Instead right. of saying, I experience depression or symptoms of depression, I am depressed or I am sexual abuse survivor or mm -hmm. these types of things. And so what you're wanting them to be able to do is, is to separate from those so that they're not the voice in their head, but they're the observer of their voice in their head. And then you can start witnessing things as they are. Yeah. These are just thoughts. These are just emotions. These are just sensations. And that's all they are. They in 
they don't have any power until you give them the power and you start assuming that this is the way things really are in life and what the non-dual life is is trying to do is to stand back from that and realize that's really not the case so when you do like say meditation for instance is this is that not like the the calm apps which are I'm not a real big fan of those. I mean, they're okay and people can relax and they can get something out of that. But having a calm voice saying, you know, you've always been a beautiful flower and you always will be. It's like, well, okay, that, that, that might provide you some, some peace and some focus and this type of a thing. But really what you're trying to do with meditation is to let go of the control and not be able to identify so strongly with your thoughts and emotions. And when you have that, you're actually exerting the power that you want. Right. So you're allowing things to occur instead of saying, it shouldn't be that way. It should be this way. I want it to be this way. And there's a, a concept, and it's, it's fairly detailed, and it's um, a thing that I, I give people and I say, okay, so we've done all this work with emotional management work and et cetera, et cetera, cognitive behavioral therapy, looking at your thoughts, how they impact emotions and stuff. And when they, they endorse that, got to take a breath here, um, then, then, <laughs> and then I, I come off and I say, well, now I'm going to give you this, this memo, this memorandum. And if you have this memorandum, you'll have whatever you want. You'll get whatever you need. If you want to be taller, fatter, shorter, if you want to live in the 1800s for a day, it, it, no problem. You just have the memo. You just flash that. You get whatever you want. And people go, yeah, this is, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. Where are you going with this? I'm bored with this. And you say, no, 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 this is wonderful. You'll, you'll get instantaneously whatever you want. And you go down this path with them, and they get kind of almost disgusted. And it's like, well, you're not going to get everything that you want. There's no way in the world. Right. Would you just, where, where are you getting with this? And then when they're completely rejecting it, I actually give them this memo. And it says that it works on um, themselves, the world, insects, animals, inanimate objects, God, nature, whatever you want. You flash the memo, you get instantaneously whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And when they've completely rejected this and they see it's stupid and ridiculous. And they're saying, and, and it says is, dear world, do as I say or else. I want what I want when I want it and I want it now with all my love and then the person's name. You say, you just go to the grocery store, you show that, you don't have to pay for anything. And they look at you like, oh, this is just dumb, 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 dumb. And when they've completely rejected and they think that you're you know, silly and stupid with this, then I say, well, think of the last three to six months that you've been experiencing sorrow, upset, anger, whatever. How many of those experiences didn't involve a memo? Mm -hmm. And at that moment, they go, oh my gosh, the very thing that I've been fully rejecting is, is that I'm re realizing I'm projecting out onto the world this structure that really doesn't exist mm -hmm. precisely. Mm -hmm. So the very thing that they were saying, this is stupid, 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 then they're sitting there and saying is, and I'm doing that very thing. Mm -hmm. You know, life isn't fair. I, I shouldn't have to put up with this. Uh, or they say it's fair, rather. Um, it should be fair. I didn't deserve this. I don't want this. Why does this have to happen? This is so un called for, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So then they're realizing that they're projecting this memo into the world. And when it doesn't happen, the very first emotion that they experience, it's the primary emotion. This is the world according to Scott, okay? So you got to take that with a grain of salt. But the emotion that I see that's the problem that pops up the most is the emotion of surprise. They can't believe the world isn't reflecting what the memo says. Mm -hmm. This isn't what I wanted, so I should get what I want. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of them that realizes that's you know, bullcrap, 
but there's another part of them that's still wanting that to happen. And so it's that part that's still wanting to have that happen that needs to be dealt with. And so you're needing to have a partnership with the part of them, the ego state that is, that subpersonality that says, I already understand this and that this is garbage. But the other part of me is saying is, no, I should still get what I want. It should be fair. You should do what I want. If you're my girlfriend, you should do what I expect. You know, you should laugh at my jokes. You shouldn't disagree. You shouldn't be petty. I shouldn't have to wait in traffic or in line. Nobody should cut in front of me. The political party that I want to win should win because, well, it makes sense to me. And so when you have that, they, they say, well, I've got this memo, and they look at it, and then they look at the world, and they're like, but, but wait a minute, the, the world isn't reflecting back what the memo is saying. And the first emotion that they have, the primary emotion, is surprise. Now, the secondary emotions that would come in after that would be the frustration and anger and the disappointment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the primary is, is, is that they can't believe it because it's the linchpin. If you pull that out, and you replace it with acceptance, we don't get to those secondary emotions. So part of the thing is, 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 is like when you're doing trauma work, is to try and build those in as resources and to get people to realize is that they really probably shouldn't be trusting their thoughts and emotions as much as they think that they should be. Mm-hmm. And when they can detach from that, or not detach, but non-attach to that, then you have the power. Mm-hmm. Now you're seeing the world as it is instead of the way that you think it is. It's tough because in our society, if somebody reflects back the concepts that I believe in, then we assume that that illusion is reality. Mm-hmm. You know, the Dallas Cowboys are the greatest team ever. And you go, yeah. And I go, uh-huh, that's yeah. true. And you go, yeah, absolutely. Go, that's real then, isn't it? And all that is is it's just an agreement on the illusion. It's not really the reality that it is. Right. So to use the football metaphor once again, it'd be like kind of watching the football game and then all of a sudden turning down the sound. Now you're able to just witness the football game instead of hearing the color commentation and the play-by-play, which is just a recording from the ego saying, this is the way it should be, and I'm giving you the interpretation. Mm-hmm. So it's a very egoic sense of what the interpretation is instead of just witnessing it as, as it is. These are just thoughts. These are just emotions. These are just sensations. These are just sounds. And allowing them to occur mm-hmm. instead of saying is, but it shouldn't be that way. And that's when the memo comes in. That's what the ego is. Yeah, I can imagine that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the easiest thing to get people to embrace. But when they start seeing that, though, um, the really the big journey starts. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I, I for one, find it kind of um, comforting to know that I'm not the one in control of reality or that, sure. you know, just because... I get to make my day-to-day decisions. I don't need to worry about everything else and everything else that's happening is is um, essentially um, as it should be. And exactly, right, right. For my growth, you know, and that's how I see it. It's like it's for, it's, it is like, we're, we're pretty selfish beings. Like everything that we do is essentially for ourselves and at least in my own personal opinion. Um we do we do what we can to survive and succeed and procreate and blah 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 but um it's and it's so it's interesting to just kind of step away from that a little bit look at the big picture and realize that yeah you're not the center of the universe <laughs> sure right 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 it's so the, the the big thing is 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 that when you are using that memo is is, is that it's assuming that this positionality or opinion is in fact of law of nature or a truism when in fact it's not so what we're saying is is that you should be loving to me because i'm loving to you 
And so that is a truism. That is like a law of nature. And so I'll question people and say, well, let's try and separate the differences between laws of nature and truisms versus opinions and positionalities. So I throw out some extremely provocative concepts that people will really struggle with, and I do it purposefully. And I'll say things like, say, children should not be beaten severely. Well, obviously, I've lived most of my career trying to be able to prevent that from happening, and I believe that that's the way that it, it you know, we should try and strive for that. Absolutely, that that's a bad thing to beat children. But when you, you look at that, that's really a position. Mm -hmm. It's an opinion. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good opinion, but it's still an opinion. It's not like I try to go beat a child and my arm stops because there's gravitational force that prevents me from doing so. Right. So to say is that this should not happen, it's not in a sense of like a truism or a law of nature when you throw a ball up in the air and it comes down to the ground because that's gravity. Gravity is going to exist. Two plus two equals four. You know, you had two hydrogen molecules together with one of oxygen, you put them together, at least on Earth, and then you have water, truism. Mm -hmm. But the idea that the Dallas Cowboys are the greatest team ever, that you shouldn't be children, or that your wife should be, you know, the way that you want her to be, or whatever the case would be, they may be good, they may be noble, they may be holy, they may be pragmatic as can be, but they're not truisms, and they're not laws of nature. And the minute you see that, and there's a break from that opinion and positionality, now you're not going, but this isn't supposed to be. And that's where the memo comes into play. Do you have a like I'm, a harder time explaining this concept to people with religious backgrounds and and you know Sometimes, say yeah. what would be a a method that you would kind of use to break down those barriers of separating like the yourself from your religion. Well, it's not always so easy. Um, you know, some people are very set on their concept of the way that it is. And you start talking about, you know, certain things like, like non-duality and these things. There's elements of, of non-duality, let's say in Christian uh, philosophy, and sometimes you can go for those and be able to have some common ground. But it depends. I mean, there's some things also that are in the, like especially the Old Testament, that are pretty harsh and angry. And I think what those are is, is that those are projections of unenlightened people that are being put onto God if you want to. And it's more of an idea is, is that I'm angry or I'm hostile or I'm unforgiving. And so I'm assuming the same thing. I think it was uh, the Voltaire, and I'm paraphrasing, and Voltaire had said something along the lines of um, that uh, God made man in his own image and God being, or man being the gentleman returned the favor of God, meaning that my position and the way that I feel about myself is that's the way that I see God. So it's a, it's a projection. And so if you're being non-dual, if you're being conscious, if you're being loving, if you're being accepting, then you're going to see God in a similar type of a way. And I'm not talking God in a religious sense. I'm really not mm -hmm. in a spiritual sense. I mean, you could equate it to nature or pantheism or something like this, and you wouldn't necessarily have to do that. So sometimes separating these concepts out from religion and spirituality are a huge thing. I don't identify with any particular religion at all, not at all. Um, but in terms of uh, being a spiritual person, I think it's huge. You know, I think it's a it's a major concept. Absolutely, it's um, having that that belief outside of yourself that, like I said, like I'm not in control. It is a little. Like it's it's comforting to know that you are one with the people. Like you're suffering together. You're you're experience the sun. You experience the sun and the rain, just like the trees do. It's um, 
Yeah, there's no separation. There's right. no subject object. It's just one. Right. I love that. Um, I definitely have adapted my own religion, I think, and or spirituality is, you Probably. know, I've. I have like um, taken concepts from what I like or from the religions, the parts that I like and adapted them to my life uh, rather than seeing them as, as, um, as rules, as truisms, Mm -hmm. um, seeing them as something that can be flexible, just like relationships, (laughs) just like anything else in life. You can adapt the parts that resonate and, um, and work with those rather than having to stick with the whole. Well, it's a subjective experience. Right. And to just use cookie cutters, which I see probably more. I mean, I don't want to bash religion entirely, but but it tends to be kind of more clubbish. We all think this way. We all go along this way. And so it cuts out any subjective experience when it's like we all believe this way. So you've got to believe this way, too. And when you get into that, then it's it's kind of tough. So anyway. Yeah. So what would you say for someone that experiences a deep trauma? um, Where do they even start? How would they even find someone? um... Well, the the thing is with grief specifically is, is I tend to lump it into two, two categories. One would be as a complicated grief and one's an uncomplicated grief. Um, The uncomplicated grief is, is that I miss the person. I'm struggling to move forward. Um, I'm having to reconstitute my life and what I do and my position in life, and that's tough on its own. But that's uncomplicated grief. The complicated grief is then the exacerbation, the things that we really don't need, like the parts is that I'm to blame or that I was a bad son or daughter or I have some type of unresolved issue with the individual that's passed. And now that they've passed on, now I really am struggling to be able to make sense of that and to be able to resolve those things because I don't have that individual to resolve it with. And the thing is, is, is that you don't necessarily have to have that contact with the individual to be able to resolve those things. So you're trying to unpackage those various concepts in the complicated grief, if that's what we're talking about, and to know what that is. Does it involve that you need to forgive the individual that's passed on? Does it mean that you need to forgive yourself for some things that you have maybe done or not done? Um, So it it just depends on the individual case. It's not so much um, the individual techniques that you're using, but is listening to the client, knowing what their specific needs are, and then shaping it around that. Mm -hmm. So if it's like an uncomplicated grief that is uncomplicated without the problems, then maybe just general talk therapy would do plenty Mm -hmm. and just trying to offer general advice about how to keep moving forward and and to be able to try and maintain existence and uh, cope with day-to-day activities, probably going to be just fine. And they're going to work through it and the therapy is going to help. But if there's complicated grief, then it's listening to the intricacies that are actually there and being able to know how to go after that. One of my favorite things to do in uh, counseling is to do hypnosis mm-hmm. with people that have struggled with grief. It's wonderful. It's just, it's, it's fantastic. Um, so think of it from my standpoint as the therapist, not from the client, because it's, it's, it sounds kind of weird when I'm going, I love dealing with grief. Boy, this is great. But the thing that I'm, I'm I, the reason I love dealing with that is because it's working for the purpose or for the person to be able to get that, that release and that letting go process. And the hypnosis is a wonderful way to do that. 
you can think of hypnosis is when you go beyond direct suggestion, which is just sending messages to the subconscious that you don't want to smoke cigarettes or you don't want to overeat or these types of things. And that can provide some, some growth and some motivation to move forward and to get up over a hump to be able to change a habit. But it's not going to provide you any more insights. And so I'm not really so interested in that type of insight or that, that type of hypnosis. What I'm interested in is doing hypnosis that's going to provide insights and wisdom and new ways of looking at it. And so you can think of in the deep, uh, in, in the deeper parts of hypnosis is, is that it's like a gestalt experience where you can actually have like the concept of being able to communicate with the dead. And I don't mean in a seance, but it's kind of like the open chair technique that you would do in tech, in, in talk therapy, not in hypnosis. If your mother was sitting in front of you in the chair, what would you like to be able to say? Mm-hmm. What would you like to be able to resolve? Now, I want you to be mom for a minute, and I want you to give feedback to that. Now, you got to be mom to be able to do that. Now, that's very hard because sometimes they have a hard time taking on the role of mom in that sense because they so identify with themselves. Mm -hmm. In hypnosis, that's much easier to be able to bring about those gestalt experiences and have the fidelity that whenever you are being mom or whatever it would be, you know, is that individual that's passed, you're able to be them. And so you're able to have these conversations and work through these things, not in a, like a seance kind of a thing or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's like the open chair technique that I was describing, but on steroids. Mm -hmm. And when you can do that, you can get these conversations out that they just can't have anymore because the person has passed on. And they so identify with their, their turmoil and their trauma or experience of negativity that they can't assume the other role. They can't assume the different perspective. So think of the hypnosis as as being like a virtual reality. And when you can bring those things about, then you can start changing the perspectives. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like Yoda said does um, when he says, says, you must unlearn what you've learned. Mm -hmm. And so if you have these uh, belief systems that are appearing to be unshakable, the virtual reality-ness, if you will, of the hypnosis provides you that environment to rework through things and to be able to free yourself up with that mental energy. And that's why it's just, it's it's wonderful. I, I love it, love it, love it, love it. And it usually works pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, usually one session, some, sometimes two. Um, but, but it's not like you just race in and you just start doing the hypnosis and boom, it, it goes from there. Mm-hmm. So you have to build in resources, insights that aren't there. So it's like if, if you didn't know how to play the saxophone, me hypnotizing you in hypnosis, you'd think you play saxophone. Oh, you'd be playing all kinds of notes and stuff, but that doesn't mean you know how to read music or that you know the fingerings or the embouchure to be able to play that. So for me to help you in hypnosis, I'm first going to teach you how to read the music, how to play the saxophone. And then if you had difficulties with, say, playing in front of an audience or something like that, I would help you to overcome like stage fright or something like this. But the hypnosis is as good as the resources that the individual has. So if they don't have those resources or insights, you need to build them in. Same thing with EMDR and brain spotting. No difference with that. So if the individual thinks is that I need, oh, I don't know, collagen in their lips, breast implants, and a new BMW to have higher self-esteem, and you're trying to work on self-esteem issues, then obviously that's going to fall short trying to work with them about seeing that they need to be basing it on content of character instead of breast implants or something like this. So you need to be able to have those resources available to them if they don't have them to be able to make use of them. So the prior counseling and those kinds of concepts are kind of like a boot camp 
to get them prepared to go into battle. They have to know how to shoot their weapon before you put them into battle. Yep, that makes sense. I mean, and I'm sure they appreciate having the tools. And um, no, it sounds it sounds o- really oftentimes no though. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, They're because like, oh, the, I, I don't I don't want to do this. I came here to do hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Why are you talking to me about this? Let's just get rid of it right now. So it's an unrealistic expectation. So you have to do some mm-hmm. education to get them to say these are the stair steps to get you to that point. And. What else do you treat with hypnosis other than just grief? Oh, there's gobs of stuff. Um, I, I, I do a protocol that I wrote up with, um, with addiction. And I have a substance abuse, uh, accelerated substance abuse program for, for addiction. And I can use it with any kind of addiction. It doesn't have to be really with substance abuse per se. But um, for instance, what I will do with that, there's a, a, a protocol that they'll, I use age regression and I will go back, I'll take them with their sober and clean self and I'll go back with the part that used to find utility in drinking or using drugs or whatever it might be, but no longer does because they have found new utility in coping. And so what we'll go back and, and we'll do uh, like say age regression and go back to age 16, for instance, the first time that they were drinking alcohol. And that 16-year-old part may be disconnected to the sober and clean part that they are right now. And the 16-year-old says, but I fit in and I'm with the guys and, you know, I am appealing to women and I feel amazing and this is wonderful. So the adult part that they are now is saying is, I've gotten DUIs, I've had all kinds of relationship problems, health complications, legal problems, I don't want to drink. But the 16-year-old part of them is still saying, this is the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. So what you need to be able to do in that is you need to get rid of that euphoric recall and recontextualize that by giving the insights in the current to the parts that are still remaining state dependent in that past. So it's like the person that's been sober and clean for 15 years and they say, on a hot day, a cold beer still looks good. What the hell's wrong with me? I don't understand this. So if there's that 16 year old part that's saying is it's celebration, it's to be feeling accomplished or manly or something like this. You need to eradicate that that uh, euphoric recall to be able to move forward so that on the hot day, the cold beer still doesn't look like the greatest thing ever. Right. It's not the golden calf that you thought that it was. Right. Other than hypnosis, I know that you do EMDR and brain spotting. Mm-hmm. Those two really interested me, and I kind of want you to go into explain um, exactly what EMDR is and sure. brain spotting and then what you can treat with those sure and, and, and with the hypnosis one more thing there's a lot of other things but boy i just rattle on forever on something like that <laughs> but uh with emdr it stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing so emdr is a much easier way to put that mm-hmm. um what you're doing is is you're using both hemispheres of the brain the left and the right in general terms you can think of the right side controlling like the left side of your body and that would be like the emotional side and the left side is controlling the rights of your body and that's more the logical you know mm-hmm. side of yourself the pragmatic side and so what you're doing is you're using eye movements that would cross the midpoint of your nose going back and forth to left to right to be able to stimulate both hemispheres so what you're doing is you're bringing the emotional and the logical together like that to be able to move traumatic experiences that would be stored say in the lower brain stem that white flight or freeze part of our brain and that part of our brain is designed to hold on to this traumatic information and never let go of it and why would you want to not let go of that well we've still got those you know kind of prehistoric man and woman kind of brains some of our software is a little clunky 
uh, like the lower brainstem that says you've got to hold on to them because it's a very dangerous and scary world that's out there. And if you don't forget this material of a scary experience or a, you know, a, a brush with death or something like this, you don't respond to those cues, then you're going to be tomorrow's lunch. So here's some intrusive dreams, here's intrusive thoughts, here's cues that will set you off and you'll be ready to fight to the death or run away or just freeze up and experience or, or uh, just being able to kind of surrender to the moment. That's what the lower brainstem is in essence trying to do. And this is an oversimplification, but that's what's kind of going on. When you're stimulating both hemispheres of the brain with the left and right movements of the eyes like that, you're stimulating left and right hemispheres of the brain to be able to move that material from the lower brainstem so it's digested throughout the rest of the brain so that you're not hung up on that and it's not a repetitiveness that's going on. So it's kind of like hitting the system's reset button, if you will. Mm -hmm. You don't need to use eye movements um, alone. You can use tones and taps, so like a, a little thud and headphones going left to right, back and mm -hmm. forth, or with taps going left to right. There's like these little vibrator things you can hold in your hands and they'll just go and provide a vibration in your left hand and your right hand. And what you would do is you go back and forth probably anywhere from 24 to maybe 40, 45-ish times back and forth as a set. And when you're doing this, they're reprocessing the traumatic material that is stuck. And so they're going back into that and reprocessing it. But when they reprocess this, they're bringing their both feet into the present moment, not mm -hmm. one in the past, one in the present. You're bringing both into the present. And when that happens, like I'll just kind of give you a, a, a little breakdown of a, a little case study here. This is just imagined. But let's say a guy comes to see me and he has been beaten for several years from five to age 15 by his father. And let's say I say, okay, so there's numerous events. Yep. So when you think about them as you sit here in the chair with me now, that's the thing. As you currently look at them, we want to eradicate current symptoms, not where you were in the past, but where you are now. And they say, and the, the individual says, well, the worst one of all was when I was 10 years old and my dad broke my nose at a birthday party. It was blood on the birthday cake. It was just disgusting. It was awful. And I go, okay, so that's the worst. And go, that's a, that's a, that's a key one. Yeah, that's a biggie right there. Mm -hmm. I say, when you think about that now, what are the thoughts that you have about yourself? So a tra traumatic experience isn't going to be traumatic unless you personalize it in some way. Mm -hmm. So it's how do you feel about yourself as you relate to that experience? And if the individual says, um, let's say, I feel unsafe. Now, they're sitting there with me in the office, and it's me, and they have good rapport, and they know that they're safe. But when they think about it, that virtual reality, it seems like it's happening now. Because your brain doesn't do a very good job of differentiating imagined from reality. Mm -hmm. So they still feel unsafe. And I say, okay, so what would you want that thought to be? Well, I feel safe. And I say, when you scan your body, where do you feel that tension? Well, tightness in my chest. I say, okay, how distressing on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being the most. They say nine. I go, okay. So at that particular point, if we built in the resources and the relaxation and the ability to be able to, to, to hold together enough emotionally so that they could reprocess this stuff, we say, then let's start the EMDR. And so I'd say is, is, in essence, as we think about this experience, uh, right now I want you to bring back those thoughts and that experience and feel that in your chest or stomach or whatever and feel that distress and that idea that you're not stressed or that you're, you're not safe. And we'd start in with the bilateral stimulation. I'd go back 24 to 40, 45 of those, and I'd stop and say, now, take a nice deep breath and tell me what's going on. So they would tell you quickly, you know, I'm having this thought or this emotion or this physical sensation. Like, it's like I can see the birthday cake with the blood on it. It's just absolutely disgusting. I feel like I could vomit right now. I say, good, then stay with that. Mm -hmm. And we go back into the bilateral stimulation. 
And the thoughts and the emotions are basically at that particular point in bodily sensations are kind of like a train that's going down the train tracks. And these are just like scenery that are passing by. There's a thought, there's emotion, there's a pig, there's a house, there's a tree, et cetera, like that. And we're going forward through it. Probably about, let's just say for instance, two thirds to three quarters of the way through the session. And he's bringing back these memories and maybe even being tearful or feeling bad about it or whatever. There's a break in the action. And the individual might say is, dad's dead. He can't hurt me anymore. I say, good, stay with that. And then we go back to the bilateral. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm pretty strong. I can bench press 300 pounds. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can take care of myself. Yeah, stay with that. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that's why mom left him when we were 15, because, you know, I finally punched him back and he never touched me again. I mean, mm-hmm. and stay with that. Well, this happened in Seattle when we lived there and I live in Dallas now, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so what you see is this unraveling is that I'm not safe. Mm-hmm. And at some point you're in there saying, is, well, I don't feel tension in my chest anymore. I feel relaxed. I feel good. It's like, yes. And so when you think about that incident now, how safe do you feel? Well, I feel very safe. Do you feel unsafe at all? No, not at all. Good. Then what we would do is we would slow down the saccades, the back and forth stimulation to about usually around somewhere between eight to 10, maybe as much as 12, six, something like this, bilateral sets, but very slow. And now what we're doing is we're reinforcing the positives, the epiphanies. And so when you slow down the bilateral stimulation, those those really gems of wisdom and stuff, they're able to pull them forward and make use of them. And that's a very even, or that's an extremely comforting and reinforcing principle at that particular point. Mm-hmm. So it's great. So when you're doing hypnosis, I'll use the bilateral stimulation in those so slow sets with EMDR, because when they're hitting those epiphanies, you want to enforce them even more. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's like, wow, this is great. It's like steroids. It's like this right. feels even better. And when you add the bilateral piece in there with the slow saccades back and forth, it makes it even stronger. Right. So it's awesome. Exactly. Now, the difference is, is to see people say, well, how long will this last? And it's like, well, how it's not trick the, the, the epiphanies and the good stuff and the okay. realizing that you're safe. Okay. The, the thing here is, is that you're changing perspectives. So it's not like the Jedi mind trick where you say, is these aren't the droids we're looking for. And then five minutes later, you're going, ah, those are the droids. So the probability that the man's going to wake up tomorrow and saying, well, all of those great epiphanies and logic and stuff that I saw, kind of like the world is round and not flat anymore. I'm not going to wake up the next day and believe that the world was flat again. Mm-hmm. So the idea that I'm not safe and these things, those things aren't going to come back. And so that's what is different is it's not a trickery or it's not something that has a shelf life for just a little bit. It's something that we put that to rest. Right. You're actually going in and retraining the the brain to think a different way or retraining the neurons to fire a different way. Completely, yes. It, it, so what's happening is, is that they're now able to be in the moment and have those thoughts and they're not being consumed by them. Right. So there's a better differentiation from these things are in the past and not in the present. I like that. Um, that's that's really interesting. And that's that's one of the big things you can do with the trauma. So you can think of EMDR as kind of being like a forked road. And so if you go up the trauma route, you're unsticking or really stuck negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. And what you want to do is you want to get the person to see as much as they possibly can that the thoughts aren't adding up. So intellectually, you want to fill that that your brain up as much with saying, I can't endorse these things. They don't right. make sense. I know that. And I say, but how's your heart and gut feeling? And they say, still feeling horrible. <laughs> say, now we're ready to do EMDR because we've got the resource. Now we just need to get it to the heart and gut. If you go up the other side of the fork road, 
you can use EMDR to unstick overly stuck positive thoughts with addiction or an overfocus, if you will. Right. So even though I know heroin is bad for me and I've had to prostitute myself and had to steal for it and do all these nefarious things to be able to do it, I still like heroin. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is using the EMDR to break that bond that the heroin is providing you with all the goodies that you thought it was. Mm -hmm. It's not the golden calf. So similar in nature is unsticking overly stuck positive and overly uh, negative stuck thoughts. That's what the EMDR is going to be really big on addressing. I like that. That um, reminds me of this neuroscientist who was talking about how trauma or when you're in a uh, trauma bonded relationship with someone, mm -hmm. you or a, you're in a relationship with a socio or a sociopath or a psychopath, you your prefrontal cortex turns off and you, your ability to make good and bad decisions isn't as strong as it should be um, because you're training your neurons to um, identify with, with abuse. Yeah, you're going with what you know. Right. So you're retraining, you're retraining your brain to think a different way. I think that's, that's fascinating. So you can see using that in hypnosis too if you had mm -hmm. somebody that was let's say sexually abused at age nine, for instance, you may not want to do hit or um, EMDR with the adult in the chair. You'd maybe want to do it with the nine-year-old mm -hmm. and you'd want to use the adult as a resource because they've survived through that and they've been able to persevere and go on. But the nine-year-old is the one that's still holding the pain. Mm. So what we might want to do in hypnosis is use EMDR with the age regress state mm. of the nine-year-old. Okay. So that's kind of some of the concepts of soup as well, mm -hmm. is, is that you're combining EMDR and using it in hypnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. If they go, go hand in hand, and you're right, they reinforce each other. They just make the, the treatment a little bit stronger, more sure. effective. Oh, okay. So when it comes to hypnosis and um, EMDR, have you, you mentioned in our, in our phone call, when we were first chatting, you mentioned um, how you have sometimes addressed sexual dysfunction with hypnosis yes. and EMDR. Can you go into what that looks like, please? <laughs> well, well, the story that you, you liked. We're, well, think of it this way, is, is we have what's known as ego states or subpersonalities. Okay. So there is like, say, a, a professional you, there's a silly you, there's a daughter you, there is various parts of you, and they may be different ages and have different perspectives on how things need to go in the world. So an ego state that is oftentimes overlooked is, is the body can be an ego state as well, and sometimes even individual body parts. Mm -hmm. So if you're dealing with, like, say, somebody that has been cleared by a medical doctor, then they shouldn't have like erectile dysfunction or there was nothing standing in the way of them having like an orgasm. Like say sometimes if a, like a woman is taking like SSRIs for instance, sometimes genital sensitivity is not what it once used to be because you're taking the SSRIs and that is a symptom or a side effect I should say of taking the medication. Mm -hmm. So if the, the, the doctor has cleared them that there's nothing standing in the way medically, then you can ask to speak with <laughs> and, and, and you can do this with any one of the ego states is, is I want to speak with the part of you that wants to continue to drink alcohol or I want to speak with the part of you that still sees merit in being angry mm -hmm. and just say just tell me when you're here when you're here and they'll say I'm here mm -hmm. and so you can interact with that so the secondary gain 
that, if you will, is oftentimes in the form of an ego state, but it's personified, the secondary gain is. So when you're talking about, like, say, sexual dysfunction, you may want to speak with, I'd like to speak with the penis. Now, you know, it sounds funny. <laughs> it's just another body part. Exactly. And so you, and, and the thing is that's interesting is, is that the, if the, the penis is healthy or the clitoris is healthy, then they're not going to hold the, the issue usually. Mm-hmm. So the issue, they're going to point you in the direction of where the issue is. So if you're speaking to the penis and say, I want to speak with the penis that's having difficulty with maintaining an erection, can I speak with the penis now? Just tell me when you're here. And the penis will say, I'm here. And so you'd be very respectful and you'd be not emotional or trying to side with them, but you kind of just objective and standing off and just questioning and saying, well, there's some difficulties with erectile dysfunction. Just wanting to know what your perspective is and what is maybe going on with this. Mm -hmm. And since the penis has already been determined to be healthy, the penis would say, well, I'm not the problem, for instance, they might say. They'd say, you know, he's got problems with premarital sex and being able to feel comfortable with this. There's a part of him that is just saying he's bad and evil and wicked if he has premarital sex, mm-hmm. so we shouldn't do this. Or if he has sex with his girlfriend, he's worried that this will make him more committed. So it's not me that you have to work with. It's the part of him that is, is, is having commitment issues. Oh, okay. So the interesting thing is, is, is that you can actually ask the penis What's the direction of the problem? And they will oftentimes tell you. Same thing with clitoris. I want to speak with the clitoris and why there's difficulties with having an orgasm. Can you just speak, you know, and tell me when you're here? Well, I'm here. Well, she's not able to have an orgasm. And I'm just wanting you to know, since you're the clitoris, what your perspective is on that. What can you tell us? And the clitoris might say something like, well, she's too worried about, you know, being fat or ugly, or she's not comfortable with her body in some kind of a way. I'm not the problem. If she would just give me the attention and not be so consumed with her weight or her work or the kids or her husband or something like this, then I would be able to work properly. Oh, you would? Yes, yes. So she needs to overcome the difficulties with intimacy or her body or something like this. So strangely enough, going to the part that seems to be causing the problem, oftentimes they'll point you in the direction of where the problem really is. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's, um, that is something that, I'll, like, I, in my past, if I have an issue with something, say, like, I'm drinking too much, I will just cut it out. And I won't necessarily address the root like underlying cause of like why I am reaching for that substance or why I'm having difficulties with achieving orgasm. Um, and I think that's, it's definitely something to note because we just want to cut out whatever is, uh, we think is the stimuli that's holding us back, but instead it's, there's a much deeper rooted issue. And so we oftentimes need to listen to the part that's trying to, that's getting in the way. But our quick knee-jerk reaction is often to say, I just want to eliminate it. Right. And that would be a problem because if you've got a part that's saying, drink a lot, I mean a bunch, Mm -hmm. then you'd need to know from that part that's instructing you why drinking so much would be trying to be adaptive. Now, it comes at the cost, but what's, we need to listen to the symptoms and why they're presenting instead of just looking at the the behavior itself. Mm -hmm. So what's the intention? What's the context of the behavior instead of just judging the behavior alone? So that's when you get into the individual parts. And it's basically like kind of doing um, family therapy with yourself, Mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's group therapy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I love that. Um, Yeah. So many, so many people could benefit from 
from hypnosis and EMDR, I think. And that's the ego state therapy that plays a part when you can work with it in hypnosis. And yeah. not everybody does that, but that's that's right. some really cool stuff. Yeah, you're applying different different states of the psyche into the practice. You're not just addressing um, my 24-year-old self. You're addressing my traumatized child self who wants to fit in with the cool kids. Yes. I and love that. So you might have the six-year-old that's wanting to fit in with the cool kids and stuff, but they've found that alcohol is the way to do it. Now, that might be surprising. They said, but they're not even 21. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter what the behavior is. If that's a way in which they can fit in, mm-hmm. then the six-year-old is going to get behind that. So, again, you're, you're talking soup again. So is this right. is that if the, the, the six-year-old is still feeling that way and they're traumatized, then maybe we need to do EMDR with the six-year-old. Mm-hmm. But we maybe need to do that with the six-year-old in the age regression because I'm really dealing with the six-year-old, not the whatever they, their age is, and then a conglomeration between the six-year-old and the 30-year-old that's sitting in the chair or whatever it might be. I love that. Um, okay, now I want to... Uh, segue into the work that you used to do when you lived in Illinois, Indiana, mm-hmm. Illinois. Um, you worked with sex offenders for 16 years. I think it was 18, actually. 18? It's a <laughs> yes. long time. It's a long time. That's yes. awesome. Um, obviously, this population is extremely misunderstood. Um, first reaction for a lot of people. I mean, I've brought this conversation up with a lot of people and there's people who just say, Nope, they should just die. And that is, I mean, honestly, like I get it. I get where they're coming from because it's their personal experience. But at the same time, there's so many factors that come into play. And I would love to hear about your experience, why you got into working with this population um, and this was, and then the types of therapies you were um, engaging with them. Sure. When I started off, um, I, I had a, a professor in, in graduate school, and she worked with adolescent sex offenders in the Department of Corrections. And one of our field trips was to go to the correctional institution and talk with some of the kids, um, some of the adolescents that committed offenses. And I was just kind of blown away about how they weren't so demonic and crazy as I thought that they were going to be. As a matter of fact, they were quite normal. Mm-hmm. And so that was very interesting, and that piqued uh, my interest. Then when I had an internship after graduate school, there was a sex offender program that was there, and it was primarily all with adults. And so as an intern, I was trying to get as much experience as I could with as many clients as I could, and it it was fascinating, the, the group work that was being done with the adult sex offenders, completely not what I thought. And by comparison, when you were trying to deal with, like, say, somebody, and I'm not, I'm not trying to discredit this, but somebody that has, like, some mild depression because they have empty nest syndrome or just kind of feeling low about themselves or I don't know how to get along with my spouse, there's a definite need for therapy with that, most definitely. But the richness of the stories that you were getting from the sex offenders just made those other cases pale by comparison. And so it was like, wow, this is really fascinating. And as an, a personal challenge, I was like, well, I'm going to stay and work with this group because I think if I can work with them, I can do pretty much whatever I need to do in the field of mental health. And strangely enough, I actually really started enjoying the work working with them because therapy works. And the recidivism rates, that is for doing another offense after you've been caught, are not astronomical like people would think. Mm-hmm. 
For child molesters, it's about 13 to 14%, and for rapists, it's around about 20%. And that's not just an individual study, that's repeatedly. So the big thing is trying to do assessments to be able to determine who's at greater risk than the other one separating the wheat from the chaff. And there's actuarial risk assessments, kind of like um, actuarial risks are based on statistics. And um, so for instance, when you get your uh, car insurance rates, if you were a 16 year old boy versus a 16 year old girl, statistically, we know that the boy is gonna get into more car accidents than the girl. And we know to what degree and to what percentage and for how long. So when you're looking at sex offenders, you use that same mechanism to be able to determine where their risk is. It's not perfect, but what you do is you take out the individual opinions, like, well, they present well, or I think they're deviant, or this this conjecture and uh, assumptions the about them. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and your ability to, to determine who will recidivate and who is not is not much better than flipping a coin. Right. So when you use the actuarial risk assessments, you improve your ability to predict who is going to be the more dangerous ones from the non-dangerous ones. And so that's key. And so when you involve the treatment, you're not curing them, but you're treating them. So it's not like you've been through treatment, therefore you're bulletproof and it will never happen again. But that's with anything in counseling. I mean, it's not like, you know, you it, it's it's not like the the bacterial infection that you had on your foot or something and you take antibiotics and 10 days later it's cured and it's never coming back so you just can't do that with behavior so it's treating not curing so did you write these or come up with these uh risk assessments oh no 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 i I didn't do that people far greater than me and researchers (laughs) and stuff um, what they would do is basically they would go in to look at archival information and they would do factor analysis and they would be able to determine which are the factors that are most indicative of uh, sex offenders that recidivate versus those that don't. Mm-hmm. And from that, then they were able to do research and then determine which ones actually recidivated and which ones didn't. Okay. So for instance, having a male victim puts you at greater risk. Uh, having prior charges and um, uh in convictions puts you at greater risk. Uh, It's a stranger puts you at greater risk. So each time you go outside a taboo and you're still willing to be able to do it, then that puts you typically into a greater level of risk for doing something like that again. Like the male victim, we don't have, or at least I don't know of any research at this particular point, but I don't think it has anything to do with sexual orientation. It's just like most people are going to typically be leaning in the direction of heterosexuality. So if you're willing to go and sexually abuse a male and you're a male, then that means that you're willing to go the extra mile to commit the offense. Mm -hmm. If you were looking at gay men, then I'm assuming, and I don't know this for sure, I have no idea on this one, but it's just an assumption. If you were to offend against a female, then that would probably put you at greater risk, but that's an assumption. I don't have any research on that one. Mm -hmm. So each time that you're willing to go a further taboo, like with a stranger or with a non-family member. Because if it's low-hanging fruit, like it's somebody in your home that you know that you've already established a relationship, that's pretty low-hanging fruit. But if you're willing to go hang out at the Greyhound bus station all day long for somebody to wander in there to abuse them and stalk them and do these things, then that's showing greater levels of taboo that you're willing to cross. And so therefore, there's a greater risk for you committing new offenses. So it's not really an it's not really an assessment where you can lie. Mm-hmm. Actually, you can do those evaluations pretty much by just looking at good file information mm-hmm. and what you've got in front of you. And what are a lot of the common factors that you saw in sex offenders when it came to like their background, 
um, I would say like addiction, maybe even sexual trauma themselves. Right. Well, there's certain things that there, there, there are certain things that separate them from the general population, but much more so that they're more like the general population than dislike the general population. Well, that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the enemy, we found them and the enemy is just like us. Yeah. Um, but certain things that you would see is like usually higher levels of uh, inability to cope, higher levels of addiction oftentimes higher levels of pornography usage, um, that there would be uh, uh, higher levels of uh, sexual abuse. The range is, uh, it depends on which research study you're looking at, but I've seen studies that are is like as low as like 30%, as high as like 80%, mm-hmm. but it's usually higher than the general population. Roughly speaking, about one out of four to five females have been sexually abused at some point in their life, and about one out of six to seven males have been sexually abused. The other thing is, too, is most of the offending is being done, at least we know of, is, is more male than female. But women sexually abusing children is usually not assumed. If you see a man playing in the park with a bunch of little kids, you might raise your eyebrow. If you see a woman doing that, you'd say, well, no, that's just kind of the way that women are. They are with children, so no big deal. So there's some double standards there and assumptions that get brought into it that are not necessarily um a real indication of what's really going on but females are doing it too so that's that's just not a isolated thing with men usually the ones that are doing most of the offending are the younger ones as offenders get older they typically don't recidivate as much as when they're younger Mm -hmm. like 18 to 25 is like a hot zone for them but juvenile offenders that are under the age of 18 um their recidivism rates are even lower so that's very promising so the, the research, it depends on what study, but anywhere from like three to maybe 10-ish percent, somewhere in there. So it's not like the universal, every one of them is doing it again kind of a thing. Right. So those are myths as well. The, the myths are huge with sex offenders. But they're all say. pedophiles. No, and most of them, a lot, well, I wouldn't say most, but just because somebody's offended against somebody that's a minor doesn't mean that they're a pedophile. Right. I mean, they have to, the offender has to be at least 16 and the victims have to be prepubescent, and it has to be something that's been in existence for at least about six months or so, that they've acted upon it or had fantasies in that direction that would be you know, leaning towards wanting to sexually abuse prepubescent children. So it, it's kind of like an example um, of like somebody getting drunk, and you say, is, well, now they're an alcoholic. No, you have to have a pattern of it. And it's the same thing with sex offending, is if you sex, sexually abused a minor, one incident or a couple incidents is not going to throw them into the pedophilic category necessarily for a diagnosis. That makes total sense. Um, that reminds me of the um, conceptualization of pedophilia as a, a sexual orientation. It leans more in that direction, yeah. But sometimes there's a mixture. Um, it's not like uh, you can be a pedophile and still prefer um, adults. So it, it, it'd be kind of like the equivalent of the saying is, is, I really like redheads, but they're my preference. But she's pretty cute. She's a blonde. Okay, I can find attraction to her, too. Yeah. I can have sex with her. So you, you have people that are pedophiles exclusively, that they're only into prepubescent children. Sometimes there's a preference range. Kids three to five, yes. After age five, no way. Or there's just a generalized assumption that it's like if they're prepubescent, um, I'm good to go. So 
it, it, it becomes nuanced. It's just not this, you lump them all together and they only have interest in one group. There's men that have been sexually uh, abusing children, but yet they're sexually functioning in a healthy relationship with maybe, say, a spouse or a girlfriend or something like this. And they're good to go. Maybe that's their preference, but they'll also go in this direction, too. So it's like, I really like sirloin steak, but I'll take a hamburger, too. What the hell, you know? Yeah. So it, it's kind of the same sort of a thing is, is that there's predilections more so with adults or children, or it's maybe just exclusively children. Yeah. Or it's just incidental. It's not that I'm really into kids, but I made the screw up and I, I, I committed the offense. Kind of like the alcohol or the non-alcoholic that gets drunk. So it doesn't throw them into addiction just because they've drunk. Right. Uh, this is a off-the-wall question. <laughs> okay. Um, would you consider, like, sex offenders as a sexual preference like what if someone was like i just really enjoy raping like i just really enjoy that did you ever experience that sure um some individuals i've i've counseled before they'd say is i'm it, i'm really not even into an age range i'm just wanting to have my penis rubbed against flesh for instance uh-huh. or it's just the idea of somebody crying when I rape them. It really doesn't matter who right. it is. So sometimes the object, whether it's sex with a male or a female or an age range, sometimes that's completely irrelevant. Right. So when you look at sexual orientation, usually we look at it in terms of gay or straight. And a lot of times people don't even consider bisexuality, which is sort of interesting, but that's even limiting. So I, I tend to look at like sexual orientation as being more like, what are you interested in? And you may not even be fully interested, know that what your interests are in. Right. So I look at it kind of like a thing where I would draw it out graphically. Like I'd say it's like a baseline and then we go to low interest and medium interest and high interest. And then you would have like individual spikes. Like you'd say is, is maybe hair color is something that's important, like I love redheads or whatever. Or you like somebody that's, you know, 40 pounds overweight plus. That would be an individual, very appealing. What if she's like, you know, svelte? And I go, no, not so much. But if she's over 40 pounds, yes. If she's over 100 pounds, really a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. So you look at all of these individual predilections, and that's really more indicating uh, a sexual preference than Mm -hmm. just say, I'm into men, women, or both. It doesn't make any, it's so limiting on something like that. So there's all these other factors that play into it. You may sit here and say as well, I don't know if I would be into this or not until you've actually participated in it. So it's like if I gave you Romanian food and I said, you like Romanian food? You go, "Uh, I don't know, maybe. I'm not for sure. I don't think so. And then you try and you go, oh my God, this is fantastic. And I go, ah, you've loved Romanian food all along. So you're lying. And it's like, no, I just didn't know until I experienced it. So sometimes sexual orientation can be like that too, is, is you're not going to know until you've had a sampling of it. And maybe sometimes the sample grows on you. So if I've done away with like social uh, constrictions that are saying this is bad or wrong or immoral or something, but then I participate it and the hammer doesn't come down on me and I go, wow, this is actually pretty good. So I like to have this or that or whatever. So sometimes the sexual orientation is beyond the person's awareness as well. Right. That's really interesting. Uh, That's uh... Because what if someone wasn't born with a, or wasn't born with, what if someone didn't experience a trauma and they just, they just woke up one day and was like, I prefer it when someone cries as I'm forcing myself into them. Is that a, a conditioning or is that a, is that a genetic 
Well, this, it's probably a combination between the two, and sometimes it's more genetic than anything. Mm-hmm. Probably more so. I mean, if you look at a Kinsey scale, it goes from zero to six, and zero is like strictly heterosexual, and six would be as strictly um, gay or, or lesbian. And with three as being the midpoint for true bisexuality, a 50-50 split, and there's gradations in between there. Um, where you are on that scale is fairly fixed, and I say fairly, but doesn't mean that there isn't some flexibility or that maybe you just meet somebody that's of the same sex and you thought you were 100% heterosexual and you meet somebody that you're attracted to and it's of the same sex and you go, wow, this is different, you know. I thought I was the zero, but maybe I'm the one or the two, or maybe I'm really a three. So there can be a little bit of flexibility in that, but it's it's variable. Right. Um, it's interesting with the sex offenders. Uh, there's been some research, and I, I haven't caught or checked up on this for a while, but what they were finding is they were looking at penal plethysmographs, which are basically measuring erectile responses in a laboratory. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a strain gauge mercury loop that's placed around the base of your penis. And when you're presented with sexual stimulation is, is do you show erectile responses or not? And what they were doing is they were using EMDR to work through traumatic childhood experiences, primarily being sexually abused. And that when they were treated with the EMDR and they had resolved those sexual abuses, what they were finding is the phallometric arousal that was there once before was not there now. So EMDR was actually making a change with what the predilection was for their sexual interests. So removing the trauma of their own sexual abuse was actually changing what their interests were with. That's really, I was going to ask what what the treatments were that you addressed this population with. That would be a big one. That has a lot of promise on that one. Um, Aversion. Is another one so like for instance if they were doing it with the, in the lab like that um, they might use like say some type of noxious gas or like rancid mm-hmm. chicken liver so each time that you would start listening to a scenario where there would be something of like molestation and you would start having some phallometric arousal there would be like a light that would come on or whatever and that would you would smell that so you start classically right. conditioning away from those interests so that would be another thing that can sometimes be done with that. There's other things, too, that I've seen, and I don't know what the longstanding results are anymore on that one, but they used to do, like, masturbation satiation, that you would masturbate, but then when you were flaccid, then you'd be masturbating to these experiences that were abusive. The problem with that is is that we're assuming that all of the sexual offending that's taking place is all about sex. Right. And what if it's about control or being accepted or domination or something like this i mean even in people's normal sexual lifestyles it's not just to fulfill a biological need there's other things that are being done like you're feeling affirmed or you're feeling love or you're feeling close or you're feeling excited or there's nothing to watch on wednesday night and it's boring so this is sort of fun to be able to do you know kind of a thing so you can't just assume that it's just about the penis and that it's all about sex that's where the hormonal replacement therapy comes into play. Sometimes that can reduce sexual interests and it can reduce offending. But castration or chemical castration, it's sometimes referred to with the anti-androgen uh, therapy. If I'm involved in sexual offending for power or for feeling affirmed or close or whatever it might be, you might be bombing the wrong target. So that's not going to be foolproof. That makes sense. I really like that you brought up that sex wasn't it's not always associated as a biological need because it's Correct. it happens up here in our brains most sure. of the time 
I know some people don't even need to be touched to have an orgasm. Um, they can just lay there and literally go through it in their mind. Um, sure. So that's just definitely something to note here. Um, gonna circle back and have you kind of talk about brain spotting. And sure. I know that developed after, um, after you worked with sex offenders. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to use that with sex offenders. Um, the, the brain spotting was invented by David Grand and he had come from the EMDR world. And what he found was, is, is that you can actually hold traumas in a visual field. So think of your, your, your eyes going across as, is like the horizontal line and that your nose going up and down, um, is, is like the X axes. And so what you've got is four quadrants that are there. And so you've got like a quadrant here in the upper left and then the quadrant upper right and then the lower sides too. And what you'll do is you'll take a magic wand and instead of the bilateral stimulation where you're going back and forth, you'll go from the midpoint and you will go slowly from one side to the other. And what you're doing is two things is, is you're looking to some type of um, uncomfortable feeling that the client is developing as they're thinking about the trauma. It's like, ooh, I can feel it right there. Oh, that's not good. Or man, that gives me this thought or this image or whatever. And when you're doing this as a therapist, you're looking for like, say, there's an inside window and an outside window concept. And the outside window is what the therapist is looking for. So a, an eye flutter or a facial twitch or a swallow or a breath that's just a little bit different. And you'll say, how about there? Do you feel uncomfortable there? And they'll say yes or no. Or the individual just reports that that's inside window. I don't know about it, but they're experiencing that. Yeah, that doesn't feel good. So once you feel that that uncomfortability, we would go either up and down and find the specific point, and then we would hold on that point. And it's similar in EMDR that you're working through those things, and it will bring up new thoughts, images, emotions, bodily sensations, etc., like that. And you can actually process through it because the optic nerve then connects to the vagus nerve that goes parasympathetic in your heart, mm -hmm. and then you get the release. Now, the cool thing about that is, is that if you don't hit the activation on that with the traumatic experience on the opposite side, you'll get the resource. And so with the resource, you'll actually feel like a letting down. It's like, oh, I feel relaxed. Oh, boy, that feels good. That's really nice right there. So when you're looking at people and you hear see them talking, oftentimes what they'll do is they'll, they'll keep putting their eyes in a specific spot. Mine is like here on the, the lower right-hand side or right about there. So if I'm looking at you, I'll periodically like draw from the well, so to speak, with this information and re-engage with your thoughts. And it provides me that, that reprieve or that information to then come back online and be able to be with you. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Once you find where that resource is, is, is that you can use that like in meditation or when you're trying to relax or when you're trying to go to sleep. And if you just put your, your eyes in that position, it's just like, ooh, that feels good. Some people get more of that than others. So if you were to go to find the resource spot first, then we would work through the trauma there by holding on to that. And when that was reduced, then we would, that would lessen the load with then going to the activation side where the trauma would be. Typically, I like to go the activation side first if, if they can tolerate it. But I like to use the brain spotting as more as a, uh, as, as the end thing before we start wrapping up therapy because EMDR, um, it tends to be, tends to be, I'm generalizing here, is, is heavily involved with cognitions mm -hmm. and changing those cognitions and emotions too, but cognitions. So when you do the brain spotting, the, it works really nice on being able to clear out any kind of somatic holding the body holds onto the trauma. Mm -hmm. 
So when you go to the doctor and they, they hit your leg and your leg pops up like that with the reflex, that reflex only goes as far as the spinal column. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go to your brain. So you can get bodily responses with holding a traumatic experience that don't go all the way to the brain, but the body's holding that. Mm -hmm. So it's like, so you'll be saying, no, I think I'm, I'm cleared out for that, that, that trauma that I went through. It's like, okay, then hold on to that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine. And then you're moving your finger or, or the, the wand I use and going from the side and they go, oh my God, oh, I just, I get the squeeze. He's feeling in my stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hold on to that. So the interesting thing is when you're using a wand and they've got that is that if you approach the person and you get closer and if there's an aversion to it, then oftentimes that will increase the level of yucky feeling, if you will. Mm -hmm. But if you pull it back farther, then it feels easier. However, if it's something that they wanted to be close to, like, you know, a loss of a relationship or something like that, the farther you go away, then the more aversive it becomes. And the closer that you come back, the more that they feel the comfort. Sometimes there's a mixture. There's, there's ego states that it's like, part of me wants you to be close, but part of me wants you to get away. Sometimes you find is that is as well as different ego states have different brain spots. So that's pretty fascinating as well. Um, right. It's uh, because it's lodged in a different part of your psyche, right? right. So mm -hmm. um, this this kind of, I mean, you can clarify this for me, but it kind of sounds like not only do we hold trauma in our bodies, but we're also holding it in our aura and where like everything around us. I don't know so much about aura, but I, I would say a senses. So it's like if, if you... You, you see something, you go, I've seen that before. So it's a memory that's stored in the visual field. Or okay. if you hear a song, you go, oh, that reminds me of high school. Okay. Or if you smell something, that's like grandma's bread. Or uh -huh. what is this spice? Um, oh, yeah, it's I had this on vacation. It's blah, 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 whatever it might be. So you're holding them, but these are tactile storages of memories. So I, I had a girlfriend one time, and uh, we were dating for, I don't know, six, eight months, something like this. So I've been dating for a while, and I came up to her. We're in a, a, a bar listening to some some blues music, and I just came up, and I put my hand on her back. I don't even know how I did it. She turned around and hauled off and whacked me and said, mm -hmm. don't you ever touch me like that again. I'm like, oh, I didn't know what I did. She kind of got away from that for a second. She said, I'm sorry. She said, but that moment when you touched me like that, that reminded me of my father touching me. Mm -hmm. So there was a tactile memory that was associated mm -hmm. with her sexual abuse by her father. So that was something that was still there. Totally. I've definitely experienced um, that kind of tactile or that mem that sense of memory, um, attaching it to a sense. Right. Um, I love that. Uh, and is there anything that people need to be prepared for before they go into a brain spotting session? Like any prep beforehand? Well, you, you can use brain spotting is uh, a replacement to EMDR. I just usually don't. I usually okay. like to address it with the EMDR. There's, there's some certain things that you can do to make EMDR easier. Some of the resource building is one of those things, but there's a, a, an, like say, building in a relaxation program, some mindfulness exercises, these types of things that can make it easier. But there's also a technique called the flash technique of EMDR. And it's kind of like a pre-EMDR, EMDR, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because you can say, is, um, well, here be just a kind of rough preview of what it would be like. Let's say that if somebody come in, came in and they said, um, the guy that his father was beating him, when I think about that, I feel unsafe. And I said, let's just take that and put it in a box and kind of just throw it to the side. We're not even going to talk about that right now. So we're not going to worry about that. But can you give me like 
say three, for instance, three incidents where you felt really affirmed, where you felt really strong, where you felt really good about you. And they go, yeah, yeah. I mean, really strong confidence building, good stuff. And they say, yeah. So they give you three scenarios. They said, could you tell me like a little bit, maybe two or three minutes on each one of those? They said, yeah, I could do that. I said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do is, is, is that I'm going to tap on my legs kind of in a, a mechanical way like this and fairly slow, like a boom, boom, boom. And we're just going to talk. And you're going to tell me about those three experiences. And I'm going to say the word flash. And I want you to flutter your three eye, or your eyes three times real quickly. And just keep talking to me as we're doing this. So if you notice, we're doing installation, right? Okay. And we're talking about this. But if you also notice, too, it was kind of like a subliminal. Because I said, what was that thing? Oh, yeah, your dad hitting you. Okay, let's throw that away. So what the research would say is, is that there's kind of almost like a porthole, if you will, that, that, that's still open with that trauma, but we've thrown it to the side. So it's kind of like, the, there it is, now it's gone. Yeah. And then what we're doing at the same time in the here and now is we're reinforcing with bilateral slow sets uh, of the bilateral stimulation, three things that were very empowering. Now we're doing this at the same time, kind of like in an exposure kind of a therapy, is that you're safe, but that trauma incident is still there it's just on the periphery and we're not focusing it on right now so you're feeling very very safe even though that's there mm -hmm. so it's like a form of exposure therapy in that so the thing that was scary and terrifying is now being paired with these experiences that were optimal that were wonderful that were very reinforcing and now we're reinforcing it with the bilateral stimulation making it even stronger so when they're doing it with the flash it's also disrupting that cognition and it's kind of jumbling it up so it's not being like a strong narrative that you're just following. So then when you're done with those three incidents, you'd say, how are you feeling right now? And they go, really good. Those are those are wonderful, you know, pinnacle moments. It's really cool. Excellent, excellent. You know that box that we threw over there with that thing that was in it? Just that thing, remember? You told me on a zero to 10 scale it was at like a nine. Where is it now? Mm -hmm. And they go, oh my, that's that's like at a four now. I go, yeah, 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 yeah. So think about that. Is this that experience? It was at a nine. It's now a four, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Should we just go ahead and do the regular, you know, uh, protocol for EMDR and just go through it? Now we're starting at a subjective units of distress mm -hmm. at a four instead of at a nine. Mm -hmm. So the idea of doing the EMDR is much easier because there's not that much of a load to carry. Yeah. If it, sometimes it's, it's, it almost works as a standalone. It's like, I, I don't feel anything right. anymore. I, I don't. Say, like, well, let's go do the standard protocol. I mean, heck, it's like a chip shot now. I mean, it's just like a little putt. You're right next to the hole. Let's just knock it in. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're doing those things, you're making the process much easier. And so they're not having to carry the whole load. And so when people are scared and they're like, oh, I don't know if I can face that EMDR stuff. I don't know if I can look at that. That's just terrifying. That flash technique is a wonderful way. It's, it's not like a topical anesthetic, but almost, sort of, yeah. sort of, kind of. Yeah. So it's not a deadening, but it's a le lessening the load, the cognitive load, the, the emotional load, so that when they have to push through it with the regular protocol, you're not, you're not coming from that raw standpoint. It's, it's knocked down quite a bit. Yeah. All right, what would you... I'm sure that there are people who come into your practice and, and then people who won't even come into your practice because they have their doubts about these Completely. approaches. How, how, what would you, what would, first of all, what would these doubters say or these critics 
say about this, all of these alternative types of therapies? And then what would you, how would you rebuttal them? Well, I'm one of the doubters initially. Um, it took me, I don't know, maybe six or seven years of hearing about this silly finger-waving EMDR crap that just seemed dumb. I mean, it seemed stupid. Yeah. And I didn't believe it. And then you keep seeing the research and I'm still going, there it is again. And it just keeps showing that it's working and it's working. And at a certain point, you have to sit there and say, well, if I'm going to pretend to be a man of science here, I mean, I got to start believing this stuff, you know? So I, I went to the, my first training back in 2007, still not fully believing it. And then I heard the first day of the training. I'm like, okay, now this is making sense. Now I'm, I'm fully getting into this. And then the second day or third day, I don't remember what it was now, but is, is that you got to be a client. So you're, you're in pairs and you, everybody's got something. And, and you were supposed to take an incident from your past that was no more than um, on a zero to 10 scale in terms of emotional distress, no more than a five. Mm -hmm. So whatever that would be. I picked something I thought was a five, but it was really a nine. And I didn't know it until I got into it. Wow. And um, my experience was when I was uh, five years old, six years old, the, the next door neighbor uh, was murdered. Oh, and he was uh, uh, Illinois Bureau of Investigation. That's what they called it then. He was a narcotics agent that was undercover. And he was killed, decapitated, basically. And um, But it gets worse than that is, is then the guy that did it got off on some technicality. And then he went to a, a local fair, county fair, and handed out leaflets admitting to the murder. Oh, my god! And they couldn't try him again because of devil jeopardy. So the image I had was my friend running to my house, and I can still see him this moment, wearing the cowboy hat and cowboy boots and running. And why was that so distressing? He was running to my house because the police were all over the neighborhood because they were worried about retaliatory hits. Oh. So this little town that I lived in of 1,800 people in the corn was now not safe, was scary. Mm -hmm. And it was a terrifying thing. And that was still back there. And when I was doing that, I was like feeling warmth and tightness in my chest and I was breathing quicker and this type of thing. And it was very upsetting. And then as I described early in the uh, previous EMDR scenario I was describing is, is then, then it was let go of. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy cool. This is just amazing. So at that point, I was a convert. That's awesome. <laughs> so I give that to, to people and I tell them about that story. Sometimes the personal, uh, the narrative on that one helps to sell them. And then I have all kinds of stuff on my website that's like, this is the research behind it. And there's just oodles upon oodles of research. So a lot of the people that come and say, well, I, I'm kind of skeptical. I want to look at the research. And then they look at the research and there's just gobs of it. And it's just like, oh, my Lord. Yeah. And I mean, this is endorsed by the American Psychiatric Association, American mm -hmm. Psychological Association, the Department of Defense. You know, I, I mean, the World Health Organization, and you just go on and on and on and on and on. on. So when you're seeing that, it's like, okay, so my skepticism, and, and I've said this to people too, and I said, well, you can be skeptical, but the research is the research. So I mean, so your, your skepticism doesn't really matter. It'd be like, you can be skeptical that you're taking penicillin, but the penicillin is going to do its stuff whether you are skeptical or not. Right. So, I mean, if you're going to be resistant... Resistance is different than being skeptical. If they're resistant, then that's going to be difficult because they're not going to be compliant with what you're wanting. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's uh, makes me want to go try EMDR. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's it it really is 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 incredible. You don't have to have PTSD to do that. Yeah. The the simple criteria would be is just to think of it this way: when you think about incidents from the past 
or maybe even in the future. Like I'm worried that this will happen and these bad things will befall me and stuff. Sometimes that can create a trauma too of something that's not even happened, but it's a fear that it could happen. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got something like that that's going on and you're saying on the scale of zero to 10, if you're going, that still hurts, then that would be something that would probably in most cases be something that you could address through EMDR. But it's that personalization you're trying to Mm -hmm. rid yourself from. It's usually dealing with, I'm responsible, I'm bad, um, I can't get what I want, um, I deserve this, um, these types of things. And so there's a, a negativity towards self in some way from the trauma. That's the part that we need to remove, that exacerbation, the personalization. Yeah, I love it. Well, this was um, quite enlightening, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you were opened up to us. And now I want our listeners to know where they can find you and um, any social media handles, website, and then kind of if they were looking for a therapist um, who maybe they live in a different state, um, where would they go to find someone? Well, two, two main things that you can go to, um, EMDR International Association, EMDRIA, E-M-D-R-I-A, and I think it's a .com, not a .org, but I could be wrong with that. But if you put in EMDR International Association, you'll go to the website. There'll be all kinds of good stuff that's there for you to check out, and they have a referral listing of EMDR therapists. Okay. So that's one big thing that you can go from there. Another thing is, too, is, is uh, it's probably even more powerful than that is Psychology Today, and I'm on Psychology Today. So Scott Allen Smith, uh, PF Dover Counseling, and I'm in Trophy Club, Texas. And so if you were to go to Psychology Today, and let's say you live in, I don't know, California or whatever, what you would do is you would go to the Psychology Today, and there's a Find a Therapist link, and what you do is you plug in your zip code, and then you have personal preferences. It's kind of like trying to find a home on Zillow. Mm-hmm. So I want a three-bedroom home that you know is this far away from the schools and this neck of the woods, and I'm willing to pay this amount and blah blah blah. And this stuff. so you can do that with the therapist. So there's a treatment modality, and you can click that box for EMDR, and you'll get like profiles of the individual therapists that are in your area, what they charge, what insurance if they take it, you know this type of thing, and you have a a, a choice of who you'd want to go to. That's a very powerful tool. So tool. So wherever you are. Uh, that works. My website is uh, PF Dover Counseling and PF Dover Counseling mm-hmm. And so if you just plug in Scott Smith, I'm in Trophy Club, Texas. Um, I think that sometimes it comes up as I'm still in South Lake. I used to be in South Lake, but I'm not. I'm in Trophy Club. And that'd be one way to find me there as well. And if you go to um, my website, there's like a podcast that I've given in the past that talks about these treatment tools. There's all kinds of presentations about EMDR and hypnosis and this type of stuff that have been in previous uh, trainings and stuff. So there's there's more than enough to look at on that website about what we're talking about here today. Great. Well, thanks for sharing the resources and thanks for coming out. Thank you for joining me at the Psycho Podcast today. I hope that you enjoyed the talk. You can also find upcoming episodes on Twitter and Facebook, as well as my website, The Psycho. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out via email or direct message on any of those social media platforms. Hope to see you guys next time.